Hey everybody, I'm really sorry I can't be with you in person today. I'm here virtually instead as we together navigate the latest kind of bout of COVID in and around Worcester. This teaching series, When Life Hurts, uh, is really important and we've deliberately timed it because we sense as we've been praying and seeking God for us as a community that this is something he really wants us to lean into, to look at. And so many of you said, yes, timely. We need to spend some time thinking about the hurts and the challenges and the pain and the conflict and disappointments that we all experience as we navigate life together in this broken, messed up, screwy world. But all of us have got some sense of that afresh after two years of a pandemic, which has had that kind of exposing effect, hasn't it? Where we've found ourselves having to face up to stuff collectively, as a society, as a global society, but also individually within our own lives, as we've perhaps had less uh, uh, place to hide, less space to hide, the busyness of life got taken away, some of the normal distractions got taken away, and we became aware of stuff going on in us and around us that actually we'd ignored or not seen or hadn't realised quite how complex and important it was to really, really deal with it. And and, no, and so many people have said to me that they, they recognise that that's part of their story at this moment. And so what we're really doing is saying, how, how can we bring our stuff to God and let him transform us? Because if we don't let God transform our pain, we transmit it. If we don't let God transform our pain, we, we get held back. We don't become all that we're called to be. But similarly, we can't be all we're called to be for other people as well. We can't be the people of God in this world, able to bring hope and love and grace and mercy to bear for other people. So in this first section, what I want to do is just help us think through some of the ways that we go about trying to handle the realities and difficulties of our lives, the pain, the hurt, etc., uh, that aren't helpful. It, what are some of the things we do naturally as human beings in our imperfect, broken state, if you like, that actually get in the way of God doing that deep work of healing and restoration and transformation that he's so there to give to us and that we actually ultimately do really, really want. And then Jess in part two is going to look at how the biblical invitation plays out in terms of coming to God and letting him do what only he can do. If a child trips over and hurts themselves, they'll cry naturally. Uh, maybe they've grazed their knee or banged their head or trapped their finger or something's happened and, and they feel the pain, they feel hurt. And they articulate that, they cry and they, and they cry out for help and, and they'll look towards the loving adult that they're with, whether it's their mum or their dad or perhaps a carer, grandparent, big sister, teacher, and, and understandably will we'll look to them and often go to them for comfort and for care, for reassurance, as a source of healing and hope for them. And, and as the adults or the grown-ups in the situation, we, we, our instant reaction is always to, to move towards them in their distress, to scoop them up and hold them together and, and to reassure them, to comfort them, to, to put a plaster on the cut or to, to rub some uh, cream onto that sore bit of skin or whatever it is because we love and we want to see them healed and brought back to fullness of life. Well, that's what God is like. And he wants you and I as the people of God, as those made in his image, to go to him with our hurt, our emotional hurt, our spiritual hurts, our relational hurts, our physical hurts, um, as well as to other people, but fundamentally to him. That's his instinct. Come to me. And his instinct is to go to us when he sees us in pain and distress. 
But the reality is, if we're honest, all of us as humans, imperfect as we are, have often not done that. There'll be moments where we, where we don't do that. Instead, we find some alternative way of handling what's going on in us or to us. Um, and they're not always the best ways to do it. And there's all sorts of reasons why that is. There's all sorts of psychology in that. There's probably some good theology that can be found around that. Fundamentally, it's, it's actually a lack of trust in the goodness of God. Uh, we don't fully understand just how loving and kind he is. And sometimes it's just that we feel awkward. We're not even aware of the pain, perhaps. There's other things going on uh, that kind of mean that we don't, as a default, go to him. And so instead, we do a number of different things. Uh, perhaps not all at the same time. We'll perhaps use different coping mechanisms at different times for different reasons. But all of them attempt to do what ultimately only God himself can do. The first thing we often do is withdraw. We often withdraw from relationship, withdraw from God, withdraw from the situations that are actually difficult. We, we're trying to kind of handle it, cope. We can't take too much. So we just back away, avoid the conflict, avoid the issue, avoid the pain. And that's a form of protection. They're trying to just make sure we don't get hurt or, or protecting others from what we perceive might be something we could do to other people if we're not careful. And there's a place for that, of course, to be careful about what we might do to other people. But what can happen when we withdraw just to cope and, and, and kind of avoid is that we get trapped in a sort of place of isolation and loneliness and we miss out on the healing and the intimacy and vulnerability of friendship where we actually dare to share with other people what's going on for us. So that's the first thing we often withdraw. The second thing we can often do is become defended and defensive. We, we find ourselves hurt or challenged or criticised or, or dealing with a situation that's come at us, that's cost us something. And, and to avoid that happening again, we often find the, these ways to defend ourselves from it happening uh, again. We, we put things in place to protect us. We build these barriers, we lock down, we, we be kind of become this kind of untouchable thing if we're not careful. And there's, again, there's a place for being cautious and wise. But often what happens when we go into that defensive posture is, yes, we're perhaps protecting ourselves from threats, but we're also closing ourselves down to the love of God, to the love of other people, but also to the freedom that comes from being in Christ. We're not free if we're defending ourselves all the time. We spend all our energy trying to protect ourselves rather than trying to live freely and trusting God in the life that we are called to live. One of the things we often do as well is dial down our expectations. Disappointment can really, really cripple us, understandably. And so one of the ways we kind of deal with that sometimes is, is rather than kind of navigating the mess of expect, the expectation gap between our hopes and the reality, and it's just to dial down our expectations so low that we can't actually be disappointed at all. Of course, what happens with that is our world shrinks, our vision for our life shrinks, our vision for other people shrinks and we end up living less than we know we're called to and that's dissatisfying ultimately. A fourth thing we often do is uh, put our faith and our trust in something else. We, we make something else the source of comfort and hope other than God. We, we look to things we think we can do better to give us something that ultimately only God can give us. So for example we often feel one, a whole load of pain and challenge and struggle in one area of our lives for example, relationships. And so to cope with that, we throw ourselves into something else. We make an idol of something else to give us what we're not getting elsewhere. For example, work. 
but he's struggling in one area, relationally, for example, so we throw ourselves into work. And that becomes the thing that we live for. But ultimately, anything that's not God himself, that we make a God, make an idol, will kill us. It will take life from us. It will cost us everything. And it won't give us what we're asking. It can't. Another thing we often do is self-medicate, self-soothe. We find ourselves feeling the pain, perhaps not necessarily the cause of it, but the symptoms of it. We struggle. An example would be that if you're feeling stressed and anxious and worried all the time, that's almost certainly data to tell you that there's unprocessed, undealt with struggle and pain and challenge in your life that actually is coming out in all sorts of ways that are hard. And so we feel this pain or the signs of it, the effect of it on us, and, and we look to escape it by self-medicating. The obvious classic ones are things that can become really crippling addictions like uh, sex or alcohol or drugs, but it can be shopping, it can be chocolate, it can be socialising, it can be gossip, it can be any number of things, exercise, any number of things can become a false comfort, a self-soothing medication that we use and become more and more dependent on that actually inoculates us from the love and grace and mercy of God. And over time, the effect of all of this on us can be really crippling. It can over time mean that we just become less than who we're meant to be. We become a lesser version of ourselves than, than the one that God has for us and the one that we want. We know it, we feel ourselves struggling against all of these things. It's exhausting trying to hold things together in our own strength, trying to sort of protect ourselves, present as one thing, but actually we know we're something else. And the invitation of the gospel is to confess who we are and where we're at before the cross of Christ and, and, and to step in faith into his love and grace and mercy and with him and through him to find ourselves healed, transformed and redeemed. Jess is going to look at how that works now. Great. Lots of information there. Um, I thought it'd be helpful to just go over kind of the things that he, um, the rich he, the great he, um, uh, mentioned, spoke about, just because I know for me it's helpful to like hear them again. So he mentioned five things that we do with our hurt and our pains. One, we withdraw. Two, we become defended or defensive. Three, we can dial down our expectations. Four, we put our faith into something else. And five, we self-soothe. And he says, doesn't he, at the end of that video, um, but the invitation of the gospel is to confess who we are at the cross of Christ and to step into his love, grace, and mercy, to find ourselves made whole and redeemed by Jesus. That's what we believe in. That's our faith, right? And so today, I want to start by saying, this isn't me standing here as a therapist. Um, I'm not some kind of wellness guru that's going to give you a five-step plan to um, complete wellness. I'm sorry, clergy do not have it all sussed out yet, maybe in the future. Um, but excitingly, Marg is going to come in a couple of weeks to um, unpack kind of what we do practically with this stuff. And Marg is a trained professional psychotherapist. I am not. But what I think I am called to, the reason why I'm standing here today, is because I believe I'm called to point to Jesus. Um, that's what I want to do. I'm not here to give us um, all the answers, but simply to go, what does Scripture say? How can we find ourselves in the, in the narrative, in the story of Scripture? How can I point us to Jesus? 
So we're going to open scripture. Um, we're going to start in Mark 5. So if you've got a Bible, you've got your phone, you want to maybe turn to it. Mark 5, verse 21. And I guess before we read that, we also um, come knowing that we all have mess and pain and brokenness and that not none of us have it all together. And I feel like that's a good starting point in this series is the realisation that none of us are perfect and all of us have stuff that we'd rather ignore, turn away from, not have to deal with. Um, but I think there's an invitation from Jesus here that is saying, come close. Like, I, I want to be involved. I want to help. I want us to process all this pain and baggage together. So let's read together Mark 5, um, 21 to 34. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you asked, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And with trembling in, trembling in fear, she told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So we could carry on reading, hearing about Jesus um, awakening uh, Jairus's daughter and um, we haven't got time to go into all of the passage today but um, it's interesting that Mark here is kind of making a sandwich for us and the bread is the story of Jairus and the filling in the middle is this story of the bleeding woman and the outer story is supposed to help the inner story, like add zest to it. And the inner story is supposed to permeate out into the outer story. It's quite a clever how the gospel writer had, had purposely put that together. And the outer story about Jairus, one of the local synagogue leaders, um, coming to Jesus for his 12-year-old daughter, my little daughter, and the inner story of the older woman who had been suffering for 12 years. Mark is trying to connect the two for us here. But I think what we see in both these stories is faith. Both of them had faith. Jairus coming boldly to Jesus, begging him to come with him to heal his daughter. And yet we see the bleeding woman coming ashamed and downcast wanting not to be seen. Both are desperate for Jesus, 
And both stories are about fear and faith and the power of Jesus to take people from one to another. Both on their own and together, they're worth spending time in. I want to encourage you this week, maybe go away. Maybe have to have it played to you. You can do that on the app. And just take a second to picture what that scene would have looked like. Imagine the crowd. Imagine where Jesus was. Maybe the different characters in the story. Imagine the scene, the drama unfolding. But as we stop and we just focus on the bleeding woman, who is she? Unnamed and unclean. That's all we really know about her. We know she'd been suffering with a bleeding condition. She'd had the issue for 12 years. She spent all of her money on treatment, seeing many doctors. And in fact, everything had just got worse. And you'll have probably, when people have preached on this before, heard about Jewish laws. Um, A bleeding woman, that means she's ceremonially unclean. So she would have been excluded from um, religious gatherings, from Jewish temples. Um, According to the law, anyone or anything that touched her or came into contact with her was unclean as well. And so the fact that she was in the crowd anyway, pressing up around people and with Jesus, means that they too would have been unclean if they'd known who she was, including Jesus. And I hadn't quite made the connection until this week of just how, uh, in those days, how unclean both um, bleeding women were and death was. And here in this story, we see Jesus tackling both, unafraid, not, not like scared, not recoiling. Jesus healing this woman and healing this little girl. You see, the woman was constantly unclean. And so that explains her fear of not wanting to be seen, of trying to be healed in secret. But here we see that Jesus is not afraid of mess. He doesn't see clean or unclean. Jesus isn't afraid of getting his hands involved, dirty, in the mess. And isn't that the glorious truth of the gospel? God putting on flesh and moving into the neighborhood. Jesus being born quite literally into mess, in a stable, laying in a manger. He's not distant. He's not far away. He's close. And all of our baggage, all of our pain, all of the stuff that we think makes us unclean, Jesus is not afraid of. You know, we don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. We don't have to have it all together. And I wonder what it looks like for us to start getting real with Jesus. To start unpacking the stuff that we keep pushing to the side and thinking, I'll I'll deal with that another time. I'll think about that when I'm older, wiser. And yet, here we see Jesus in the mess, not afraid not retreating. And so when this woman pushes through the crowd, we see her desperation to touch the cloak of Jesus. She wants to take this opportunity without being seen, without anyone knowing. 
And so in the large crowd, she takes her shot and she reaches out for his robe. Maybe she doesn't consider herself worthy to stop Jesus and ask him. Maybe this was the last opportunity for healing. Maybe she thought, this is the only moment I'm going to get. And one of the most remarkable things is Jesus knows. He stops and says, power has gone out of me. And it's this funny exchange, isn't it, with the disciples. And they're like, Jesus, we're in a massive crowd and you're asking who touched you. I love that they just like ask questions like that to Jesus. There's like no airs and graces. Like They're just like, what are you talking about, Jesus? It's a massive crowd. I was thinking about recently in London when you get on a tube at rush hour and you're like just rammed into these carriages. And I, I remember thinking, how do people in London do this every day for their commute? And you know, when you're in there and you, you, you couldn't tell whose shoulder was whose or like who's standing next to you and you can't really, you're not really looking around, you're just all crammed in together. It feels alien, doesn't it, after two years of not doing that. We're all like, oh, crowds. But I think in this story, the crowd plays a really significant part. And this is what I want us to focus on for a second. What does the crowd represent? If the crowd is the things in our life that stops us from getting to Jesus, what are those things for you? I don't necessarily meaning stuff like, I just need more time in the morning to spend with Jesus. I mean, don't we all? I mean more of the stuff like, what are the things that are keeping us from being real with Jesus? What's the barrier? What's the wall? Is it fear? Fear of being seen? Is it shame? We're ashamed of who we are. Is it lies that we're believing? Are we thinking I'm not worthy enough to be in Jesus' presence? Either my hurt and pain is either too big or actually it's insignificant in the grand scheme of what's going on in the world. What are the walls that you've been building up around you? You see, in this story, the woman has to push through the crowd. And it's her determination and faith that means she reaches out to grab the hem of his cloak. So what's the pain that's stopping you from getting close to Jesus? When life crowds in and it all becomes too much, there is still room for us to creep up behind Jesus. Maybe that's all you feel like you can do right now. Maybe in this odd mixture of both having fear and faith for this woman. But do you know what? We can't steal a miracle from God. We don't go unnoticed. We're not just another face in the crowd to him. He wants to know us, to look us in the eye and to remind us who we are again, to affirm our identity. You know, Jesus, Jesus knew something had happened. He'd felt the shift. And while a physical healing is, is miraculous, this woman totally healed and restored, we know, don't we, that we live in the now and the not yet. That maybe for lots of us today, we have the, yeah, but I prayed, but I haven't seen it happen yet. 
And I get it. I know there are prayers that have yet to be answered. And I know that sometimes it's easy to talk around it. And I don't have the answers here this morning. But I want to say that Jesus knows your disappointment. He's there in it with you. He's not distant. He's not judging. He wants you to know that you can come to him with your anger and your frustration and your pain and the waiting that you've gone through. He wants to know. And know that we walk this journey with you. If you're sitting here today with a, a, a ton load of unanswered prayers and maybe the disappointment is too much, I want to say today that we're here and we will journey with you and pray for you. And that Jesus knows, he knows every prayer you've prayed. And I think actually the greater miracle in this story is this woman receiving a whole new identity. So she was once unwelcome in society. And here she is being welcomed into the kingdom of God. She was once unnamed and unknown. And here Jesus is saying, daughter, daughter. He calls out her identity. Her life totally transformed. Her healing means not only is she renewed physically, she's also brought back into community, a return to temple and religious life. Totally transformed by one touch from Jesus. And I think for many of us, maybe our tra transformation and healing won't happen overnight. Maybe us processing trauma and pain and baggage won't happen in an instant. But what would it mean for us to let Jesus in today? To let him see us. To not try and come perfect and fixed. But simply say, oh Jesus, I need you. To ask him, Jesus, are you here? Are you listening? Do you see me, Jesus? He can handle these questions. And just like the woman, he welcomes our trembling touch. He doesn't just walk by, he looks for us. And just as he longs to see where this woman was, who was it that was healed, he looks for us the same. And so I'm going to pause and we're going to take a moment now. To, I'm going to ask some questions and I would love to just give space for you to just chat to God about what this means. So the first is like, what does the crowd represent to you? So like, what are the things that you've been putting up, barricading yourself from Jesus? Are you letting Jesus see you? Are you allowing him to get close, close enough to transform our pain? Close enough for him to know you? He already does. He sees and he knows, but are we allowing him close enough to heal, to transform? So let's be still and then I'll pray.